Saturday, September 30th, 2023. I'm Jared Halper. Hundreds of thousands of federal employees are wondering how long they could go without a paycheck during a government shutdown. And what you had happen in this end of the shutdown a couple of years ago is that finally you had all these air traffic controllers going to work, not being paid, and then finally a bunch of them said, we're not going to go to work. We're tired of this. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. This week, we had the second Republican presidential debate. So while the candidates flushed out policy points, was anyone the clear winner as former President Trump still dominates the polls? I think that they were kind of plowing through them to make sure that they got it out there and got it on the record. And so I don't think that they landed in the way that they might have. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. How long could you go without a paycheck? What about showing up to work without knowing when you'll next be paid? Those are the questions now being asked by hundreds of thousands of government employees who will be furloughed or asked to work without pay during a government shutdown. Some members of Congress say they'll defer paychecks, though constitutionally they have to be paid. And the director of the White House Office of Management and Budget, Shalanda Young, says those kinds of statements are theater. I will tell you, the guy who picks up the trash in my office won't get a paycheck. That's real. And that's what makes me angry. All federal employees, from custodians at the White House, the Capitol, federal agencies, to law enforcement, to air traffic controllers, to active duty military personnel, would be paid eventually, once a shutdown ends. Congress has also approved back pay for federal contractors in previous shutdowns. But who is furloughed and who works isn't precise, and that adds even more uncertainty. And even essential services like, say, the Social Security Administration and the IRS could be so short-staffed that Americans not employed by the federal government would still feel the impact. So that's where we start this week with Fox senior congressional correspondent Chad Pergram about how disruptive shutdowns can be. Well, they're significant because you don't really know who at these federal agencies is essential and who's not. And also the work does not get done. Well, why? Because federal agencies, they don't have any direction from Congress as to what bills, uh, what money, what programs they're supposed to work on. And so they shut down because they don't know what they're supposed to do. Uh, You know, Secretary uh, Ryan Zinke, he was the interior secretary some years ago during that Mm -hmm. that shutdown. He's now a congressman from Montana. And he commented that he made his entire agency essential. So, you know, secretaries, cabinet agencies, et cetera, Mm -hmm. they have a lot of power to determine who is essential and who is not. The key here is that if this goes on for a certain period of time, those workers don't get paid or miss a paycheck. A lot of times they come back and they do pay them later. Uh, There has been some resistance to that in Congress in the past, believe it or not. Dick Armey, the former House Majority Leader of Texas back in the 1990s, said, well, why should we pay for uh, work that wasn't done? Um, and considering the uh, the toing and froing, you know, the contratemps that they're going through right now just to fund the government, one could see that passing a resolution like that to pay these federal workers for work that wasn't done, uh, that might be hard to get through the Congress, actually. And when we're talking about federal workers, we're talking about members of the military. We're talking about Border Patrol agents. We're talking about FBI agents and DEA. Yeah. And this is where you've had, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell, the minority leader in the Senate, say, guys, if you're really for securing the border, uh, you aren't going to pay these folks. 
uh, that's a problem. I mean, it's a bad mm -hmm. optic. The other issue, and Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker, has said this a number of times, is that uh, the Republicans usually are the ones who come out on the losing end of the stick with these government shutdowns. I mean, they had this trifecta of government shutdowns mm -hmm. that lasted from October of 1995 and into January of 1996, uh, mainly led by Newt Gingrich, who was the Speaker of the House. This is when Republicans flipped the House in 1994 in the historic elections. And that's kind of when these government shutdowns mm -hmm. Uh, you know, came in vogue. In fact, one could even peg this to Newt Gingrich. Uh, I'll give you another one here. Back in, in 1990, the fall of 1990, the government yep. shut down for a couple of days in early February. Newt Gingrich had just become the whip. And uh, President uh, George H.W. Bush uh, had a deal with Tom Foley, then the Speaker of the House, to fund the government. And Newt Gingrich had a band of upstarts Sounds familiar here. He was the whip <laughs> and, and, and threw the president, his own Republican president, under the bus on David Brinkley's show back on ABC in the day. And so the government shut down for a couple of days. It wasn't uh, nearly the magnitude of the shutdowns we've had. But but these things yeah. kind of started with Newt Gingrich. But, and to be honest with you, you know, after the big shutdown in the mid 1990s, Jared, Newt Gingrich was never the same because the Democrats and Bill Clinton prevailed in that big time. Yeah, there wasn't another really major shutdown until 2013. You're right. It, it went a long time where, where government kind of avoided that. And, and now we've had, you know, three here in the last, uh, you know, several years, at least the last decade. And you're right. The impact seems to matter more the longer it goes on. Um, people do start missing paychecks after about two weeks based on sort of how the federal uh, pay scale works, right? That is when it becomes an issue. It was 35 days back in 2018, 2019. It actually went over two different Congresses. Um, and so that's where the uncertainty lies in a lot of these shutdowns, right? It's not necessarily if the government shuts down, but how long it takes to get it back up and funded. Right, right, uh, exactly, and and it costs the federal government money to kind of recalibrate this. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. Uh, the issue that they have right now is that there's nothing that seems like it can pass the House nor the Senate together. Right. There's a, there's a bill that you know got you know three quarters of the Senate on board uh, over there. Uh, I'm told there's been some attrition in that sense. But that said, um, you know, a bill like that, you could get 275, 300 votes for that in the House of Representatives. But Kevin McCarthy can't put that on the floor. Why? Well, he's probably not Speaker of the House after that, or at least there's a challenge at the very least right. to that. So there's a lot of internal politics uh, going on here where Kevin McCarthy is facing this sort of Damocles from Matt Gates, the Republican from Florida, to say, if you work with Democrats to fund the government, uh, we will come after you. And it is starting to be... A, and I'm not quite sure about this yet, it's starting to be a little more clear, I'll underscore that, a little more clear, that there might actually be a risk to Kevin McCarthy and his, his speakership, because all you need is about five Republicans right. to say, well, yes, we would vote to vacate the chair. And then Democrats, you know, not to, you know, not to help him out, and, and that's not been clear either. And, and then, Jared, and, and I, I've said this before, but this is absolutely the worst Death Star, DEFCON, doomsday scenario. You have a government shutdown and then Gates is successful in having a vote to remove McCarthy as speaker and then you cannot vote to reopen the government because the House cannot do anything. I will say that again. The House cannot do anything on the floor until you elect a speaker. And it took 15 rounds in January, the longest speaker's race since 1859 to elect uh, McCarthy. And if there was very little consensus to elect McCarthy, then 
How long mm. would it take now? The record is two months. And this goes right. back uh, to the mid-19th uh, century. Let me finish the shutdown conversation with this. And that's sort of at what point in a government shutdown do benefits become at risk? Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid reimbursements. Well, the, the money that we're talking about is not money that is appropriated. Uh, those those types of monies are, are, are not the monies that are appropriated every year by, by Congress. Those are on automatic pilot. Okay. Um, they are entitlements. So Congress doesn't appropriate those. So those go out the door anyway. But if you have a long shutdown, uh, you might have, you know, people who cut the checks, who handle these administrative services. The processing who might say, of it. Yes. So we might not go to work. And, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And, and, and and what you had happened in this end of the shutdown a couple of years ago is that finally you had all these air traffic controllers going to work, not being paid. And then finally, a bunch of them said, we're not going to go to work. Mm. We're tired of this, this stuff. And there was concern about the air safety in the United States. And so do you get to that kind of, you know, seminal moment in a government shutdown where that could happen? And there's actually a catastrophe, God forbid. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, think about the things the federal government's involved in besides air traffic, you, you know, food inspections. There's a salmonella right. outbreak. Or you're, talking about, you're talking yeah. about federal workers who are working without pay that may just call out sick. Yeah. Or, or not show up or, or, or do their job. Up. Yeah. 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 Or, or whatever. Yeah. They can't yeah. do the, they can't do this work. They can't keep the planes in the air safely or they can't inspect the meat and chicken safely. You know, something like that. I did want to finish our, our conversation this week with uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein, uh, who died uh, this week, uh, Chad, a, a longtime member of the Senate, a trailblazing uh, member of the Senate. I think I, I heard that when she came into the Senate in the 90s, she was one of six women. Um, and when she left the Senate, uh, there were 25 women in the Senate, um, an extraordinary legacy. Uh, I just wanted you to have the opportunity to maybe share a few of your memories uh, covering her, uh, her Senate career. Well, what I remember about Dianne Feinstein is something that I learned about her long before she came to the Senate. And it was, you know, the idea that she worked very hard on gun control, mm -hmm. passed the assault weapons ban, um, part of the crime bill with President Biden, who was the chair of the Judiciary Committee. This is in, in 1994. But, you know, she was somebody who was interested in this issue, public safety issues, years before that. And it was because she was the mayor of San Francisco. And the way she became the mayor of San Francisco is about as lurid a story as you can imagine. Uh, you had George Moscone, who was the mayor of San Francisco, and she was on the board of supervisors at the time. And Harvey Milk, who was the first openly gay elected official in the United States, also a supervisor. Well, there was an assassination by another former council member from the San Francisco City Council who came and shot Moscone and Harvey Milk. And it was Diane Feinstein who found the body. And she told me the story one time that she actually remembered putting her finger into one of the bullet wounds of, of George Moscone uh, to try to detect a pulse. Mm -hmm. And of course, none was there. And she became mayor. And there's a famous piece of video of her announcing the tragedy, the death of George Moscone and Harvey Milk. And that kind of really set her political career on an upward trajectory. You mentioned the year of the woman, 1992, mm -hmm. all these women who were elected to the Senate. Mm -hmm. She had tremendous sway with women here. Uh, in fact, uh, I, I was amazed at some of the tributes by the female senators. Uh, you had um, both Susan Collins and Kirsten Gillibrand with uh, the, these paintings that had been produced. And the paintings um, 
uh, were things that Dianne Feinstein had, had painted for them, flowers, watercolors, and then mm -hmm. given to them. And Susan Collins said that she will always think about that as something that was important to her. You know, she took it down to the Senate floor. Uh, Kirsten Gillibrand commented that she was wearing this, uh, what she called Feinstein lipstick, uh, a very distinct color, <laughs> uh, uh, red lipstick on the floor in mm -hmm. tribute. Uh, Lisa Murkowski, the Republican senator from Alaska, said that, you know, Senator Feinstein was always very proper and she probably would not have approved of the shoes that Senator Murkowski was wearing on the Senate floor <laughs> when she gave her tribute that day. And, and here's another little moment that not, not everybody gets to see. She was very close with Hillary Clinton uh, because they served together in the Senate. And this was a few weeks in either late 2016 or, or early 2017 after Hillary Clinton had lost to, to, to Donald Trump. And all the senators have what they call hideaway offices here at the Capitol. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's an office away from an office and it's not marked. Uh, some hideaway offices are better known than others. Some are more commodious than others. And Senator Feinstein, it's, it's actually one of the, the smaller hideaways, frankly. But uh, Hillary Clinton came to visit with her uh, after she had lost. And this is the first time that we really saw Hillary Clinton after election night and had uh, a light dinner with Senator Feinstein. They had some California wine. It was a white wine. And I remember asking Senator Feinstein about the wine. And she told me, made sure to tell me it was California wine. Of course, she's from Northern California. <laughs> right. And she said, it's very good. She said, would you like some? And offered me some of the wine because they didn't finish the bottle. I don't know why not. But anyway, but that kind of you know, shows you, uh, you know, Senator Feinstein. Something else that Maria Cantwell, the Democrat from Washington State, said is that one of her, her favorite quotes from Dianne Feinstein is that, boy, I'm going to have to go home tonight and read, meaning that mm -hmm. there was an issue or a subject that she was not up on. And in order to make a, a, a the proper decision about how to vote or something, she had to learn more about that. And so Dianne that Feinstein, is a story. Yeah. Say, that's a story I've heard from a lot of Republicans as well um, this week, is that they all have spoken about her work ethic and her independence to learn about the issues in front of the United States Senate. And, um, you know, I think it's nice when when you hear that sort of bipartisan friendship. And it seems like uh, Senator Feinstein had an awful lot of friends uh, with alt R's and D's by their name. Yeah, absolutely. But we will miss her. She was always very good to me in the halls here. Mm -hmm. She was. Chad, appreciate the time and uh, have a good weekend. Seven Republican candidates hit the stage at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California, just north of L.A. this past week, and fleshed out their policy points again. We need to be focusing on companies that produce in America, not companies that are helping China. I watch these guys in Washington, D.C., and they don't care about the American people. I can't imagine how you could say that knowing that you were just in business with the Chinese Communist Party and the same people that funded Hunter Biden millions of dollars was a partner this of yours as well. But as you can hear South Carolina Senator Tim Scott there, they also went after each other during the second Republican presidential debate. Tech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy responded by saying he ended his relationship with the Chinese company relatively quickly. The debate was hosted by Fox Business, so 
the economy was front and center. And Joe Biden's Green New Deal agenda is good for Beijing and bad for Detroit. Disastrous economic policies that have driven up prices, that have driven up interest rates and mortgage rates, at the same time wages remaining stagnant. The overspending, taking all Biden's rules and regulations, I'm going to throw them in the trash can on day one. That was former Vice President Mike Pence, followed by Ramaswamy and then Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. DeSantis said on more than one occasion during the debate that things are not going well in the country. You see a country in decline, our power's in decline, China's going to surpass us this decade, and if they do that, that's going to affect every single American household. As your president, I am not going to let that happen. I'm going to reverse this country's decline. At the first debate, Ramaswamy told Vice President Pence that his morning in America type speeches are inaccurate, that we are in a dark moment. To DeSantis's remark that we're in decline, Senator Scott said we're not in decline, we're in retreat under the current administration. I think the word carnage was also used, and I believe it was from Governor DeSantis. And it reminded me of President Trump's inaugural that used that Mm. word. Martha McCallum is anchor of The Story on Fox News Channel and was a co-moderator of the first presidential debate. And it's an interesting strategy. But in a way, honestly, I think it does tap into a, a real feeling in the country. I think when you look at what happened in Philadelphia the other night, you look at people, you know, breaking windows and and ruining people's livelihoods in their shops and um, all of the the murder, the fentanyl, the drugs, you know, people bent over in the streets in San Francisco and Chicago. I think people do want someone to recognize what's happening. So so I don't think it's it's a bad move for candidates to talk about it. I really don't. On the other hand, you do want someone who addresses the hope that can yeah. follow that. I mean, think about where they were at the Reagan Library. Exactly. So Ronald Reagan, you know, the city on the hill and and morning in America, you have to do both. And that great ad, that morning in America ad, you know, did both. It addressed what was going on. And then it said, but we can, we can have, you know, a, a new morning, a new day. Mm-hmm. It takes an incredible amount of leadership, I think, to pull uh the country out of where it is right now. And I think that people feel that way on all sides because we see the wrong track numbers, you know, whether you're a Democrat or an independent or Republican. So I think it needs to be addressed. And then I think you need to, you're right, you know, you need to hit it and stick the landing with a a very strong way. Like think of Churchill, right? We will never, ever, ever give in. And, and yeah. you know, he really bonded his country in the middle of World War II with the message of the importance of being British, the importance of, of the country. And no, I would say we did not get there last night. <laughs> the, I, I know um, Dana Perino, one of our, the moderators, one of our moderators said um, to Bill Hemmer the morning after the debate that she couldn't remember like a single critical line or moment. And she said that's what was needed, right? That breakthrough. I want your thoughts, though, on some of the moments and if yeah. they, I guess, stuck like Governor DeSantis highlighting that military service and getting that applause and Nikki Haley saying, Absolutely. you know, we're going to send in special ops teams to go after cartels. And mm-hmm. I lo- I was really interested in her point about why are we buying antibiotics from China when there's a plant in Tennessee making them? I wonder policy wise, was there any moment, even if Dana's right and there wasn't that like big breakthrough moment, was there anything that stuck out to you policy wise that mattered? Well, I think you've hit on some of them. And I think that 
uh, DeSantis, I think DeSantis always plays better the next day. You know, when you look back <laughs> at the things that he said, I thought it was that way in the first debate. And I think it was that way in the second debate. So if their you know, campaign is smart and they are, uh, they, they should you know, keep turning those around. Because um, when he talked about his military service and he said, you know, I, I was a blue collar kid. I went to Harvard and Yale and I, I could have taken a big job. I had offers but I wanted to serve my country. And then he talked about coming home to California, coming back to California yeah. from Iraq and how happy and grateful he was when he landed um, on the beach, you know, when, when the ship pulled in or however they got back. In plane. Coronado, California. Um, yep. When he landed in Coronado. And I thought that that's, you know, that's the kind of thing that um, that you want to hear from a candidate yeah. shows you a little bit of their heart, which he's definitely struggled with. Um, people, you know, find him, a little cold on the campaign trail um, and in some of these interviews and all that. So I thought that was a, a very good moment for him. Um, I did think that Nikki's moment on, um, on the, the pharmaceuticals was good. You know, this is something we've heard a lot about over the course of during COVID. We talked about shortages. We've right. heard from Marco Rubio. We've heard from people about this issue for so long. I think it really amazes Americans that we haven't, dealt with this, <laughs> that we don't have a secure supply of antibiotics in the United States and that we're not manufacturing them. So I think, you know, that was a great point for her to make. Um, I thought it would have been interesting. I was actually just talking to Dana, you know, that question at the end, which was, you know, who would you vote off the island? I thought it was a really smart question, actually. And they all scoffed at it, which is OK, too. But the point of it is that it it makes everyone's already thinking that watching it right who's going to drop out this has to narrow you know if republicans want to have any ch any chance at having a mano a mano or a woman against a man um mm. with donald trump then they need to winnow this field down so i, I thought it was a good question because it was what was on people's minds and then i thought it was interesting what chris christie said right when stewart said were you writing something down what did you write and he said i wasn't writing that but i would have written trump and i thought wouldn't it have been interesting if they all wrote that? Not because they don't agree or they like him or they thought his policies were great, but because they're only standing up there because they think they that they would be better. So right. I thought that would have been really interesting if they had all <laughs> sort of gone that route. Um, that's not what happened. But well, Governor DeSantis seems to have a bit of a habit of dismissing questions he doesn't like. He did that in I the know, first debate, I know, he doesn't like too. hand raises. We know that. <laughs> right. and he doesn't like, you know, anything. He's like, we're not kids, you know. But but those questions can be provocative, and uh, they do make some interesting moments. So I, I stand okay. by them. <laughs> I, I enjoyed them. Um, the, there was the, the crosstalk, and I want your thoughts on this, over some of the differences. Vivek had to defend his former decision to join, do a joint venture with a Chinese company and for getting on TikTok. And there was that debate over money spent on curtains um, between Nikki Haley and Tim Scott. Those were bought by the Obama administration for the residence that Nikki Haley lived in as a U.S. ambassador to the U.N. But then there was that debate between Haley and, and DeSantis over banning drilling and, and fracking. Um, did anyone in those types of moments land an effective punch in your mind? I'm not so sure they did, to be honest. I think what happens in the prep meetings is that they come up with all kinds of oppo on each other, right? And then I think there's a inclination to try to want to get it in, right? But on each of the ones that you mentioned, uh, I think people sort of understood Vivek's response. A lot of companies, a lot of startups right. were doing business and seeking that enormous audience in China back then. 
And I think the fact that he, you know, said, look, you know, we looked at the writing on the wall and we got out is something that people can understand. I think the curtains is, you know, probably something that comes up at a, like I said, at a, at a prep um, debate prep meeting and, you know, you jot it down and you have it in your back pocket. But I think what's missing in their, these candidates ability, and I think we used to see more of it is sort of the pause and the punch. Yeah. And sometimes those are the things that you just talked about that you kind of want in your back pocket. And if the moment is right, you want to drop that on the person. Right. But I think that they were kind of plowing through them to make sure that they got it out there and got it on the record. And so I don't think that they landed in the way that they might have if it was Mm -hmm. sort of a zing, you know, good moment. It's hard to do. It's hard to do. But I didn't feel like those moments are things that people are going to walk away from and say, oh, I don't like her anymore because of the curtains, you know. Um, (laughs) So, um, yeah, I, I think those things are useful, but I think you kind of pull them out when it feels right. What do we watch for now? DeSantis was declining in the polls ahead of the second debate. Nikki Haley was climbing. President Biden's own poll numbers are, are, are struggling, but we could also be watching major events that could impact people and you know influence their vote. A government shutdown, another Fed interest rate hike before the end of the year, maybe not before the next debate. Um, what are we, I guess, what, what would, would you say we are all going to be sort of looking at as we move through sort of the end of the year and head to Iowa? Well, you always are looking for that surprise, right? Every election, I think this is my sixth presidential election that I've covered. Every time there's always a surprise. There's always a shift. There's always something that happens that is unexpected. So obviously that is the thing that we'll all be looking for. I do think you're going to see some winnowing down of this field. I don't know if it will happen before the next debate. Um, Because, you know, for some of these folks, I think, you know, they want to just, they want to be in the arena, right? For a variety of reasons. And so they may stay in, but the money's going to dry up for a number of these candidates and it will happen quickly because the, the deficit is so dramatic between Trump and the others. But the other thing that you have to keep your eye on is this 60%, which stays pretty solid, who want another option. They don't want Trump and they don't want Biden. So it has to happen very quickly if there's any kind of movement on that, if anybody else wants to get in. I mean, people sort of buzz about Glenn Youngkin. That wouldn't be before November right? after the elections and the legislature in Virginia. And the question of Gavin Newsom, I think everybody's yeah. going to want to watch this, this DeSantis-Newsom debate, because that's really a left versus right debate that I think that, that the country will, it's almost like a preview of, I don't know, maybe it's a preview of, of the next presidential election, or maybe it's a preview of this one. So I think yes. it's fascinating. And uh, I, I think there's a lot that can shift. To that point, to the Newsom point, you know, I guess he said that the Biden administration or the Biden campaign team sent him to do the counter offensive, you know, counter programming. And he was at the Reagan library, as we all saw. Sean Hannity sat down with him after. And and again, the question, is there any circumstance under which you would run and accept the nomination? And Sean pressed him on this. And finally, after hemming and hawing, you know, Newsom said no. does, do, do you do you believe that? Do you believe he would just no. not accept? 
No, I never believe that. And, you know, I'm, I think that it's the appropriate thing to say, obviously, right. it's the appropriate thing to say. But we've long since forgiven uh, candidates for saying that they won't run and then they decide, you know what they say, circumstances have changed. Right. Um, and now I look at things differently. It's, it's, it's a very easy pivot. The other classic one is always, would you ever accept an offer of vice presidency, which everyone always says no to. And then when push comes to shove, they say, well, actually, yes. You know, um, I, I'm honored to be asked and I would love to serve. So have um, to serve. Right. You have to serve. Yeah, I, I, there's there's quite a bit of forgiveness um, for those statements in the moment. And I think everybody understands that they are pivotable. Martha McCallum, anchor of The Story on Fox News. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks, Jess. Good to see you as always. Thank you so much. That'll do it for this edition of the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Tomorrow, a former Homeland Security official tells us the cartels have never had this much control at our southern border. And we talk about bribery accusations against a sitting senator, as well as the first impeachment inquiry hearing against President Biden. Until then, I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Thanks for listening to the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com.